Gang, um, I, I am going to start a new little series tonight. Um, I sent it out on a GOL, and it has to do with the life of Moses. And then I said, uh, Israel's first deliverer. I'll talk about that in just a second. But if, you, if, you're, if you're not real happy with that choice of subjects, I, I want to blame Rick San Roman, who's sitting right here. Um, uh, <laughs> about a year ago, uh, he notified me of a book that had just come out uh, by James Boyce on the life of Moses. And so... Um, I got it and thought it was just intriguing and found three or four more and, and I was off and running. So um, that's why we're doing the life of Moses. It's all his fault. Um, now, so uh, you're going to need a Bible tonight. I, of course, I hope you need one each Wednesday night, but tonight in, in particular. Um, I have called Moses the Israel's first deliverer and some people quibble about Moses being called the first deliverer because in their mind... Um, the first deliverer really ought to be Joseph. Joseph is the one who is the first deliverer. But folks, um, Joseph didn't, he didn't directly lead Israel out. Israel came in to Joseph. He delivered them by providing food, but he didn't take them out of the house of bondage, uh, as did Moses. Um, but even though that argument might not convince you, there is one that I, that I hope will, and it's something that Moses himself said um, in Deuteronomy 18. This is verse 15, and Moses is speaking, and he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Um, God had somehow communicated to Moses that there was another deliverer coming and in a lot of ways he's like me says Moses that text Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, is quoted twice in the book of Acts uh, in chapter 3 and in chapter 7 of the book of Acts um, apparently that whole idea that Jesus was like Moses uh, and that the similarity or the, the 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 key or one of the similarities that they share is that they both took God's people out of bondage. Uh, and so, whereas Jesus takes us out of a spiritual bondage and a spiritual slavery, Moses is, of course, physical out of, that, uh, out of the house of Egypt and taking him out, but, but he was the first deliverer and Jesus is the second. Moses is a type of Christ. And I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that next to Jesus Christ, no man, has ever made such an impact on mankind, as did Moses. Now, second only to Christ, but apart from Christ, there's been no man ever lived that has had the kind of impact on societies, cultures, mankind, like Moses did. Primarily because he was a lawgiver. <clears throat> and that law, which still gets fought over, uh, even today, is something that God gave to mankind through Moses. Um, but in, in Pauline language, if you'll take a look, <coughs> in Pauline language, um, mankind had a choice between, had, 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 had two options, Moses or Christ. Now Moses, of course, came to stand for a, an approach to God that was all legal. But those two were set side by side. You've got Moses and you've got Christ. You're going you're gonna to live by Moses, you're going to live by Christ. Because, um, one, 
um, really was a forerunner of the other. And everything that Moses was pointing us to was fulfilled, of course, in, in the, the second Moses. And by the way, Hebrews chapter 3 almost calls Jesus the second Moses. It doesn't use that language, but it almost calls him a second Moses because Moses uh, served in this house and Jesus served in this house, and there's, there's language there. Um, but gang, there's, uh, and, and I think you know this too, or, or do you? Um, that Moses wrote one of the Psalms, and, um, and it seems to be a, a really a, a favorite of many people. Uh, this is the language, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, this is a text that's used quite a bit in funerals. Um, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. That, ladies and gentlemen, was written not by David, it was written by Moses, uh, very frank, um, it's, I, I, some of you will remember, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. That's an old hymn. That hymn is based on this psalm written by Moses. But the, um, the deal clincher, at least for me, when I, when I say that no man next to Christ has ever influenced mankind more than Moses, really grows out of a statement made in Deuteronomy 34. Um, I'm going to read it to you. It begins in verse 10, but, but just listen to how Deuteronomy 34 closes. It closes like this. And there has not arisen a prophet since, excuse me, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Listen to this. None like him. For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The scriptures say, none like him. Um, there has never been one, there has never been one that's arisen like him until, of course, the appearance of Christ. But next to Christ, the man who has made more impact on mankind and humanity is this man that we're going to study his life, the man Moses. Now, gang, um, you can go now, uh, and we'll just dive right in uh, to Exodus chapter 1, because that's where everything starts. Um, and we'll... In, in a lot of ways, this is going to be a, a Bible study of, in Exodus, but I'm hoping that some of the Old Testament pieces will begin to fit for you when we put some of this stuff together. But let me read to you now, as we begin, the first 14 verses of Exodus 1. And they're, they're, it's kind of brief, so it won't take long, so bear with me. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, 
lest they multiply. And if that breaks out, I mean, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of people of Israel, of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, gang, that is the period into which Moses was born. You remember he's got these two parents, both in the tribe of um, tribe of Levi, um, Amram and Jochebed. We'll talk about them motor, uh, later in chapter two, but that is, that's his mom and dad. They're both out of the tribe of Levi. That means that um, <clears throat> Levi, uh, Moses was, a, was a, at least a Levite. He was a Levite um, when he was born, but he was born into this setting. Now, again, just, these are just small little items, but I did want you to see this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Did you notice that one man is referred to by two names in the same verse? Uh, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Israel, uh, who came to Egypt with Jacob. The name Jacob in Israel is the same man. You knew that, didn't you? You know where Jacob got his name. Don't you remember back in, in Genesis 32 at, 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 uh, at PL, uh, Peniel, at that mountain? Remember that? And he wrestled with God. And uh, he lost, and he um, God touched his hip, and he limped the rest of his life. And at that point, um, God says, uh, your, "Your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. Your name's going to be Israel, uh, because you, because you strove with God, you strive with God." Um, and so he's got two names. The nation of Israel is named after him, but it was his name given to him. By God. And by the way, the name Israel, do you see those last two letters, E-L? El Shaddai, El Elyon, all that? Well, that's the name of God in his name. Strove with God. That's, what, that's this Jacob guy. So it's telling you that to this same man, but, but the thing I think that is so fun is that you will notice how the book of Exodus opens by tying itself back into the book of Genesis. Gang, the book of Exodus is not a new story. It's a continuation of the old story. It's just the story in its next phase. Um, so, gang, redemptive history is not chopped up into seven dispensations like the dispensationalists do. It's this continuing saga that really kind of started in Genesis 12 with Abram and then in 15 and, and then you got Isaac and Jacob and he has these 12 boys by these two women and, and then uh, there's the, one of them gets sold into slavery. His name's Joseph and you know, and he gets, he gets sold into slavery, he goes down to Egypt, they get thrown him in jail and the, the captain's wife tried to seduce him and, and uh, he didn't go for that. And then he was risen to the right end of Pharaoh. And there was this big famine. Are you, are you with me? Because, gang, that's the story that's just continuing. Now Joseph, you know, fed everybody. And all the sons of Israel are down in Egypt. Joseph didn't lead them out. He let them in and fed them. 
But now, oh no, Joseph is dead. The grand deliverer of Egypt is dead. You know, the guy that stored up all the grain for seven years and, you know, and had all the abundance and then the famine hit and they had seven years of famine and everybody sold everything they could. They sold their cattle and they sold their land and then they sold themselves. Now Pharaoh owns everything. Why? Because of Joseph. Egypt became this oligarchy because of Joseph. You remember one of my favorite statements in all the Bible is, is these starving people come to to Pharaoh, and they say, we're starving. What are we going to do? I mean, my goodness, you've already got our cattle, you got our land, you got our houses. What are you going to do? And Pharaoh says, well, I don't know what you're going to do. I, here's what I would tell you to do. Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. He'll work this out for you. Just, just get to Joseph. Because if you've, got, if you've got aches and pains, you need to get to Joseph. Gang, that's a proclamation of the gospel right there. You starving, are you? Get to Jesus. Get there fast. Because he'll he'll, he'll work this out for you. But that's what you're getting there, folks, is a picture of just this. Everything points to the New Testament Joseph, which is Jesus. Okay, so that guy's dead. Jacob's dead. His sons are dead. Joseph's dead. Everybody's dead. And Egypt has marched on. And Israel has uh, really enjoyed their time there in Goshen. They are, um, they are happy Protestants because they're producing lots of babies. Um, and, and they're just expanding like crazy. And, and the new pharaoh who, somebody says, uh, do you remember jo- Joseph? Who? I don't know who Joseph is. Back with Joseph. Um, all he sees is these people are multiplying like rabbits. And uh, if they have a war, they might fight on the side of our enemy. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the story really gets underway. (laughs) It's a great story. But don't miss that. It's a continuation of the previous story. It's this this story of redemptive history that is ever-expanding with each page. That's what covenantalism is, ladies and gentlemen. The... um, the, the first gospel preached in Genesis 3.15. And then from there, it just begins to fan out. So Genesis, the book of Genesis closes. And um, Jacob is blessing all his sons. And then the book of Exodus opens. And it's the continuation of that story. Gang, don't miss that. This is not a new story. This is just the same story, part B. And then we're going to get part C and part D and part E. I mean, it's just a story that's expanding over time. But um, there are some statements, gang. Um, I mean, verse 8, there, uh, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's tragedy right there. I mean, Jews were safe because of Joseph. Because Joseph had been such a hero and delivered Egypt, but everybody forgot him now. You know, he's, he's dead and gone, and we don't know that guy. Um, and then we get this, this statement in verse 9. He said to his people, oh, the people are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. 
Don't you love that word shrewdly? Let us deal shrewdly with them. Gang, um, what you find in, from this point on is it, it's just one more scene in that long feud between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Do you remember what I'm talking about? You remember um, in Genesis 3, after sin is entered, God shows up on the scene and he says, uh, okay, there's going to be a seed of the serpent and there's going to be a seed of the woman. And those two have been fighting ever since, ladies and gentlemen. And here they go again. This is just another feud. This is just the, the extenuation of the feud between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Let's deal shrewdly. By the way, Jesus uses that word shrewdly. Remember in, in Luke 16, he talks about uh, how the world admires shrewdness. They, um, they do their best to tap down anything that looks like righteousness. And they, they deal shrewdly and they appear to have the upper hand. And, and um, that, that shrewd kind of savvy is something that the world really admires. Um, and the outlook... For poor little old Israel, it would be dreary were it not for the, for the one who's behind the curtain. <laughs> um, you know who Adam Smith is, don't you? The, the Wealth of Nations. It was the book that we used to study in the, if you ever took an econ course. I don't know whether they still study Adam Smith in economics in college. They, they're, they're studying other things that are much more important, like gender. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, if you ever read anything about, Adam, I mean, Adam Smith is the one that talked about the invisible hand. You know, the big supply, demand and supply in economics. And Adam Smith said, yeah, 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 but there's an invisible hand that is steering economies. Well, there's an invisible hand, ladies and gentlemen. And it looks like it's looking really bad for God's people. But he takes these plots, these shrewd plots, and he turns them on their ear. One of the most exhilarating statements in those 14 verses is verse 12. And very frankly, folks, this is a Christian principle. Look at it, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Okay, okay, the, 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 uh, the shrewd culture, they think, well, now here, now listen, we got to deal with those people. We got to deal with them really smartly, you know, and because, uh, you know, they're spreading like a bunch of rabbits and, and they're going to fight against us. So we got to come up with a plan. We got the plan. Okay, we'll afflict them. We'll afflict them. We'll give them hard labor. Hard labor. That'll do it. That'll get them. And the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread. You know, gang, that's, a, that's what the, 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 the sons of the, the seed of the serpent, the, they think they've got all kinds of shrewd solutions to combat righteousness. And the more they do, that invisible hand. And, well, they just keep multiplying and keep multiplying 
and keep multiplying. Gang, I want to leave you with this tonight because um, I think there's something here that seen in the macro might help you in the micro. <laughs> I, I, hope you'll, I, I hope you'll follow my, my, um, my logic here, but stay with me. We only got 15 more minutes. I think you can... Um, folks, part of the explanation, not, not the only explanation, but part of the explanation of this episode, of all this <coughs> affliction and shrewdness and all that business, <clears throat> part of the explanation of this episode is that Israel had settled down in Goshen. Remember that? When Joseph brought his family in, the Pharaoh said, oh, Joseph, we really like you, and so give your family the best part of the country. Just give them the, give them the best, whatever the best is. And it was Goshen. So they settled down in Goshen. And so Israel kind of liked Goshen, and they think, well, you know, well, this is our promised land. Nope. Nope, Goshen is not the promised land, folks. And so what does God do to root them out of Goshen? He inflicts them with pain. <laughs> now, gang, um, I'm saying a lesson in the macro that might help in the micro. That is, a lesson that we see here in Israel might help us individually. Um... What was it that made them so eager to get out of Egypt? Pain. If things had been good and the economy was booming and everybody was saying, yay for the Jews, and Moses would have come up and said, all right, folks, it's time to leave here. We need to get out of Egypt. They would have laughed him to scorn So what does God do to, um, to encourage them to get out of the place where he doesn't want them? He inflicts them with pain. Um, here's a principle for us, ladies and gentlemen. It's only pain that will force us to unclutch things that we don't need in our hands. You know, it says something about our love for sin, doesn't it? That the only thing that will make us ready to leave Goshen is pain. Um, in, in one sense, ladies and gentlemen, um, Pharaoh and all of his shrewd plots to, um, to harm Israel was the thing that God used to bless Israel. I, our, our flesh tends to, um, to cling to ease. Things are pretty good here in Goshen. I think I'll stay right here. <laughs> oh, no, you won't. Um, I, I think everything's just fine and life just doesn't want to cooperate. So often, the only thing that will make me let go of sin 
is affliction. You know, guys, I love sweets. And I know you knew that without me saying that. Because you don't get to look like this if you don't love sweets. And I eat a dessert after lunch. I'd eat a dessert after supper. Seven days a week. Somebody came to our grace group last week and they'd lost, you know, considerable weight. And, and I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, <clears throat> we, we cut out sweets six days a week and we just celebrate on Sunday. And I told Susie on the way home, I think I can do that. That was Sunday night. <laughs> Monday at lunchtime, I was looking for a dessert. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, I think I can almost promise you this. Almost. I'm not sure because I've, I've never really experienced it yet, but I think I can almost promise you this. If I go get my annual physical in December and my blood numbers come back such that I am pre-diabetic, Sugar is gone. But what is it going to take to force me to let go of that? Pain. Because we so love sin. Oh, we like living in Goshen. Sorry, that's not the promised land. Guys, um, I haven't got a whole lot of time. Um, this whip that they used to punish all these Jews is a good thing in this sense. that it makes them long for the promised land. I mean, I used to be really, you know, kind of sunk uh, into Egypt. <laughs> I really love Egypt, you know, particularly Goshen. I mean, Germantown is really a nice spot there. And, you know, uh, uh. so what does God do? He brings out a whip and puts it in the hand of the sons of, or the seeds of Satan. And all of a sudden, I begin to long for the promised land. Um, I don't need long, any more enjoy this house of bondage. I want, I want to be set free. But the thing that convinced me was something very hurtful. I want to read you something that Jonathan Edwards wrote, and we'll, we'll quit with this. Jonathan Edwards, and I, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, um, but, but ladies and gentlemen, you know, Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest theologian that, ever, that America has ever produced. Now, so if you don't get this, the problem, I mean, if we don't get this, it's, the problem's ours, not his, I, I don't think. Um, but it is, it's, not, it's not altogether savory. Uh, I, I can promise you this, Joel Osteen would never read this quote. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I'm not Joel, and, um, and, and I will. <clears throat> um, listen. Afflictions that are brought on men in this world, listen, 
are from the hand of God. That's the first piece that we don't like. Listen to this. The ordering of God's wisdom includes the particular affliction, its nature, <clears throat> measure, time, continuance, and circumstances. And it is through these events that manifest remarkably the vanity of man's wisdom and power. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we haven't seen the vanity of our own wisdom and our own power. And you know how God shows it to us. He orders in his wisdom a particular affliction, its nature, its measure, its time, its continuance, and its circumstance. Folks, if you would like to see that principle in the macro, all you got to do is look at the story of Israel. How did he get them out of there? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but one of the things that he did to make them long for the promised land is that he increased their pain. You know, folks, uh, despite our best efforts to, um, to protect our ease, a God that loves us is pleased to expose, and I'm quoting, the vanity of man's wisdom and power. When, um, when Susan and I were in Ocala, we had our three girls there, and, and I would have told you, uh, I mean, enjoyed raising three little girls. They, the next-door neighbors had a swimming pool, and, and they had a little girl, and, a, and they played like maniacs all summer long. We called them the bathing beauties, and, and um, their name were the Benzics, and the Benzics couldn't be in their pool unless we were in their pool, and, um, and they loved it like that, and we loved it like that, and, and, um, and I, would have, I, would have t I would have bet you my paycheck that I was going to spend the rest of my life right there in Ocala, Florida. The church had grown to the, be the largest church in the city. Of course, it's a small city, and every other church was splitting. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we came out of there. And you know how he did it? the most horrible time of affliction that I've ever experienced in my 70 years of life. And my wife would say the same thing. I remember one night standing at the front window in our little living room there at 1315 Northeast 13th Circle. It was like 2 a.m. in the morning because I couldn't sleep. And I remember standing at that window and, and uh, everything was quiet in the house.
and screaming. All right! I'll go! <laughs> How do you do that? Pain. Gang, this is, what, this, is, this is the lesson that we must get from this in the macro for us in the micro. With God, hardship is a part of the sanctification process. I'm, I'm sorry it's your turn. But this is not because God hates you. But it's because God doesn't want you living in Goshen. What fool would ever enjoy the lash of an Egyptian whip? None of us do. But that very whip was part of how God got his people out of the land of slavery and into the promised land. That's the way he does it. I wish I had better news for you. But very frankly, once you get out of the house of slavery and into the promised land, you'll look back at that affliction and you'll, you'll say, Oh God, I don't want to ever go through that again. But thank you. Thank you that you took a whip to me and made me see that my life was never intended for Goshen. That's what's going on. We'll talk more about it next week. Let's quit. Our Father, we're grateful for all of your kindnesses towards us. There's, there, there are too many to enumerate. But Father, um, the nation of Israel would thank you for what Pharaoh did in all of his shrewdness, thinking that he was uh, controlling the seed of the woman when in fact, the invisible hand was up to this mighty work of deliverance from the house of slavery. Oh God, do it for us. Get us away from those things that, that hurt us and that tend to drag our souls into carnality. And it appears, oh God, that so often what you're going to use is some kind of lash from an Egyptian whip. But, oh God, once we're out of it, we'll thank you. We'll thank you, oh God, that you have seen, that you have loved us enough to extract us, to excise us out of those things that keep us in slavery. Do that, Father. Do that for all of us. And for my brother or sister, whose turn it is this very night, would you remind them, that these things that God orders in terms of the size and the time length and the circumstances, these are a part of you making us more like Jesus Christ. And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen.